This week, uh, we continue our series called Parables. We've been taking a look at just different stories that Jesus told uh, throughout his ministry. Jesus primarily taught through stories. Very, very rarely did he speak uh, in three-point messages. He told stories that communicate timeless and universal truths that 2,000 years later, we can talk about them in our context and dissect them, and they speak to us. It's amazing to me. Uh, to think about Jesus in that way. I really think he's probably one of the greatest communicators, if not the greatest, right, uh, to have ever lived. And what I love about Jesus is this, is he didn't try to solve everything for everybody. He introduced truth and he let it just sit on the hearts and minds of people and allow them to wrestle with it. He, he often introduced more tension than he resolved, which I think is good because we want all tension to be removed. I think really we don't want to think anymore. We just want someone to think for us and tell us what to do. And then when they tell us what to do, we disagree and do our own thing. But <laughs> these stories, they, they have to sit on our hearts and minds, and we have to wrestle with them. And so if you've missed any of them, I would encourage you to go online and check them out. So far, we've talked about uh, the parable of the, the great pearl, uh, the sower, the talents, um, and I think the, gro- the good Samaritan. And so this week, we're going to talk about the great banquet found in Luke chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 15 through 24. And this story is really, it's about, it's about, yes, a a party. It's about an invitation. It's really about eternity and God's view uh, on eternity and how he wants to spend it with us. And I encourage you, some of you to, to, I encourage all of you, I don't know if all of you did, but to, to take a look at it and read it and come with some thoughts. But before we jump into reading it, here's what I want you to, to think about in your mind. Imagine if you threw a party or your child threw a party or you knew someone, a birthday party, and you send out invitations and you prepared everything. And the day the party comes, nobody shows up. Nobody shows up to the party. I got online and I looked at for stories about that. And it's pretty depressing. You know, there are a lot of you, they just like these parents journal their kids, you know, stories of people not coming to their parties, like on Facebook and Instagram and stuff. I'm like, Geez, give the kids a break. Just don't tell anybody about it. You know what I mean? But that's effectively a part of this story, a person throwing a great banquet, throwing a party, sending out invites, people saying they'll come, and then there is, they don't, on the day of the party, they don't show up, and the person who's in charge of the party is left to make a decision on what to do. Do we cancel the party, or do we go ahead and have a party anyway? We pick up the story in Luke chapter 14 in verse 15. Verses 7 through 14 Uh, what we find before we read is that Jesus is at a party. He's at a party. So Jesus is at a party and tells a story about a party while he's at a party. All right? A party that he didn't throw. He's at a party who the leader of the Pharisees has thrown, and he's having a conversation with them, and he's he's talking. And in, in response to what Jesus says, we pick up in verse 15, and it says this, Hearing this, a man sitting at the table with Jesus exclaimed, What a blessing it will be to attend a banquet in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied with this story, A man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servants to tell the guests, Come, the banquet is ready. But they all began making excuses. One said, I just bought a field and I must inspect it. Please excuse me. Another said, Well, I just bought five pairs of oxen and I want to try them out. Please excuse me. Another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant returned and told his master what they had said. His master was furious and said, Go quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. After the servant had done this, he reported, there is still room for more. So his master said, go into the country lanes and behind the hedges and urge anyone you find to come so that the house will be full. For none of those I first invited will get even the smallest taste of my banquet. So Jesus is telling this story 
about a party, while he's at a party that he didn't throw, and he goes to this party, and he's sitting around. As he, in those days when they threw a party, they, they invited all the, the guests of honor, people that they were really wanted to be there. They didn't invite people to come who could not really do something for them. They had like this, this kind of uh, aristocratic you know, uh, environment where the, the top people went to parties. I don't know if you've ever read like a, a historical period drama or watched something on TV where like in the f- founding days of our country and even in like Europe where there was like a ruling class and there was everybody else and it was like the ruling class just read books on philosophy and, and history and then they dressed really nice and then they went to parties. Right? It seems like what they do. You know, like you went to the parties and you went to opera. And that's kind of what this is. There were certain people invited. And so Jesus is at this party and he starts talking to them in the previous verses. And he says, you know, when you go to a party, you shouldn't just want to be the guest of honor. You shouldn't rush to sit next to whoever threw the party. You shouldn't be striving to be the best. As a matter of fact, you shouldn't just invite people who you think deserve to be there and who can do something for you. He says, you should invite the lame, the crippled, the blind, and the poor. So he's kind of being like a Debbie Downer at this party. And it opens up with this leader of the Pharisees saying this, well, what a blessing it will be to attend a banquet in the kingdom of God. And he's like, oh, that's a really good statement. But he's saying it like a super religious person. You ever met somebody where you say like, you know, I'm really going through this. And they're like, well, praise the Lord, brother. We're going to pray for you. You know, and they say it in such a way where you're like, shut up. Like, I know that's true, but I don't really need that. So that's what this guy is saying. He's saying, what a blessing it will be to attend a banquet in the kingdom of God, you know. And it's just really fake. It's the right thing to say, but it doesn't come from his heart, right? And so Jesus tells this story to illustrate something in the hearts of the people that are at the party and to illustrate something larger about his father. So we've answered two questions so far is where did he tell the story and why did he tell the story? He tells the story of a party while he's at a party and he tells it to reveal something about eternity and the heart of the father. Now, interestingly enough, when he, he's talking to this people, he's talking to a group of Pharisees, and it's important to, to understand that the Pharisees are this ruling class. They're the religious uh, leaders of the Jewish people. I mean, they have kind of like a theocracy, a form of government, where the religious law uh, determines and governs the people and their actions. And these are the people that are right up there. And their lives are really, are the sentiment about them, they're marked by three things, pride, traditionalism, and exclusivity. Pharisees. What about pride? Well, they, they know everything. They're the best. They're the, they're the final word on what is good and what is bad. Like they know the law and you cannot argue with them and they will use the law to keep people down, right? To oppress and suppress people. So more pride, they, they've got it. Traditionalism, what's that? They pride, they prize tradition even over truth at times. Tradition is the most important thing. We've always done it this way. Tradition trumps even at times truth or tradition becomes the essence of truth and exclusivity. What's that? They have a certain group of people that they hang with and they think are acceptable before the Lord. And an only certain group of people are even important and have value. They're marked by that pride, tradition, and exclusivity. And this is to whom Jesus is telling the story. And he starts off his story by saying a certain man, I think whenever we read a story, it's important to define who, who, what characters represent and who they are. And, and from the very beginning, this certain man is, is God. It's the Father. And again, this is a picture of eternity. And this is really a story about an invitation. This is a certain man through a party. 
And see, in those days when they threw a party, they would send out invitations ahead of time. Like we would say, okay, we're having a party on December 15th. It's now August. We're going to invite. We're going to curate a guest list. We're not going to tell you the the time of the party. We're just going to tell you the date. That's what they did. They announced the date ahead of time, and then they announced the time of the party the day of. So you committed to go to the party knowing when, but not at what time. And so they curate this guest list. Everyone who they invite, they invite you know, the, uh, the, the, the people that they would want, the guests of honor and all that. And they invite them and they accept. And what's amazing is, is that the, servant has, the, the master has this party and he sends out his servant to announce the time of the party. Remember, this is about eternity. Who is the servant? The servant represents both Jesus and the Holy Spirit. That God has set up and his desire is for eternity that we would spend eternity with him in an eternal relationship. That's what the banquet is. It is eternity with God, with the Father. And he sends Jesus to announce the time of the banquet. The Holy Spirit to announce the, the time of the banquet. That it is now. And the servant goes out to all these guests and he tells them, Hey, hey, the party is going to be at 2 o'clock. You already, you already accepted, and it's going to be at 2 o'clock. And, and, and these first round of guests, what they do is they, they excuse themselves from the party. They, 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 they change their mind. These first round of guests, on, on one hand, very, very theologically and biblically are, are, are the Jewish people, and we won't dig too deep in that, but really they are people that I would say are like self-sufficient and self-righteous. They initially uh, accept the invitation to the party. They want to go. But now they make excuses as to why they can't. The first one says, I just bought a new field, and so I can't come. The second one says, I just bought a new pair of oxen. I can't come. third one says, I just got married. I think the third one's the best excuse. But they, they make excuses. And, and the first two excuses are, are material, right? I just bought some new plant, land, so I, I can't go. You know, I just, like, sorry, Jesus, I just got some new ox. You know, I just bought some animals. Like, hey, I just bought a new house. I just bought a new car. I just bought a new tractor. I, I, can't, I can't really do those things. I, sorry, I can't go to your party. And, and to originally accept the invitation and then to deny it the day of was a grave insult. Culturally and everything, grave insult. Hey, I just got married, so I can't come. Well, like, you know, four months ago when I invited you, you probably knew you were going to get married. But, you know, sorry, I want to spend time with my wife. Okay. That's the first group, self-righteous, self-sufficient. We've we, we got to figure it out. We don't need this party. We've, you know, it's not, it's not going to do anything for us. We, we're good on our own. You know, we, we have our own set of morals and ethics, and, 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 and we're providing for ourselves. Our job is good. Like, we don't deny the existence of God, but, you know, we, just, we, we have no time and no place for that anymore. And he comes back to the master, and he tells the master, so all those people that we invited in, in this party that you paid for, that costs them nothing. That's entirely free. It's just a desire of your heart that, that, that they come and enjoy the fellowship with you. They, they have all uh, decided they don't want to come. So here we have this picture of a party. And maybe you think of yourself as a parent, throwing it for your child. You sent all the invitations. And maybe they even RSVP'd, but the day of, no one shows up. You're left with a decision. What do you do? And it says, the master became very angry. And I love what he does. He just says this, we're having a party one way or the other. I'm not going to go try to to convince those people to come to my party. I'm not going to go beg them to come to my party. I've already given them the invitation. I sent them an invitation ahead of time. So here's what I want you to do to the servant. I want you to go out into the city 
And I want you to invite four kinds of people. Listen to this. The crippled, the lame, the blind, and the poor. Whoa, what a difference, right? Honored guests, people who are buying land, buying cars, getting married to the lame, the blind, the crippled, and the poor. Who are these people? These are, this is humanity. This is, in one sense, Gentiles. Anyone who's not Jewish, not part of the, the initial people of God that he set aside for himself. These are people who are not maybe just representing a physical ailment, but a spiritual ailment of being broken and crippled and poor and blind. They, they spiritually can't make their way to God. They can't see their way to God. They are in need of, and definitely they are people who are marginalized and pushed to the side and say, you would never be invited to the party. That's, that's, that's who he goes to invite. And then the servant comes back and he says, I've got all those people and there's still room. And the father says, all right, now go out into the country, go farther than the city and look under the, the hedges, right? Like look, pull the bushes up, man, pull the trees and find people and get them to my house. Why? Because I want my house to be full. That's what the, that's what the master says. So the servant does. And then the master says this at the end. All those people who rejected my invitation will not even get a taste of my banquet. So this picture of this master who threw a party, people denied it, and, and they go out and they find people, and they bring them in, and his house is full. He, he, he does not respond in a way that the party ceases. No, he responds by filling up his house with people who would never be invited, who by and large would think that they're not worthy, not valuable. It's interesting to me when I look at how he sent the servant out. He said, go get the lame, the crippled, the blind, and the poor in the city. Do you think there were other people in the city who weren't lame, crippled, blind, and poor he could have got? Why specifically them? Go get those who are hurting and broken. Interestingly enough, he says, get the lame and the crippled. Seems like that's the same word, right? Why, Why is he being redundant? But when you, when you look at it, because I, I didn't notice it until about like Friday or whatever when I'm looking at the text and I'm like, lame and cripple. That's the same thing. But it's different. He, he says, get those who have been lame or crippled at birth. They've been born with some defect. Get them. It was, it was beyond their control, anyone else's control. And go get those people who've been uh, crippled by life in some form or fashion who have a, a deformity based on a relationship, a, a, an instance in their life, maybe physical, maybe spiritual, maybe emotional, maybe psychological, get those people as well, the lame and the crippled. Interesting to me. And those who are poor, physically poor, poor in spirit, poor in emotion, and blind. They cannot see the truth. They cannot, they cannot perceive it. Get them. He gets them, and then go gets more. And as I, as I look at this story, I think it's amazing. It teaches us a lot of things about, about God and about the Father and his desire for people and his desire to, to, uh, for salvation and to spend eternity with people. And, and I just want to ask this question as we look at this is, what do we really learn? There are many things that we learn. We can go, we can go many different directions in this, but I want to just give three things that I think we learn in this. And the first one is this, is we learn that excuses are deadly. Excuses are deadly. Behind every excuse is a lack of desire. Behind every excuse is a lack of desire. These people excuse themselves from attending the banquet that they wouldn't have to pay for, that cost them nothing because of an excuse. An excuse. Charles Spurgeon once said this, Excuses are fashioned for convenience and clung to in desperation. Excuses are fashioned for convenience and clung to in desperation. 
Here's what I would say to us. I would make an assertion that if you're here this morning, unless someone just drugged you here, right? They just compelled you to be here. You don't, you don't are excusing that God exists. Maybe you are. And you wouldn't would outright reject God. Okay, so God exists. Maybe, maybe you agree that he is God and, and all of that. But where you may make excuses is in the area of the things that he's commanded you to do that you just don't want to do. The steps he's asking you to take, the things he's asking you to stop doing that you don't really, so you don't really want to do so you make excuses because excuses veil the truth. For example, let's just take finances, okay? That makes everybody really comfortable. Let's take finances, all right? We'll talk about tithing for a moment. I've never heard any more, more excuses than when it comes to the area of money with believers. Oh, tithing. No, I'm not going to tithe because that, that was 500. That was in the law. Really, he told Abraham about that like 500 years before the law. And we make excuses. I'm not going to do that because... I don't make enough money. I, I this, I that, I whatever. And you know what? At the end of the day, that's your decision. And I'm not trying to make you feel guilty, but just tell the truth. You don't want to. You don't want to. You don't trust God and that's okay. Maybe it's not finances. Maybe it's with your kids. You don't trust that God's way is the best way. Maybe it's with what we would call the area of holiness. Just you living out what God has done in you and empowering you, making decisions about what you expose yourself to, what you watch, what you read, what you engage in. Now, hey, I'm not a legalist, but I think there's a a right way to live. And you just say, I see that in scripture, but I don't want to. Oh, here's a good one. What about gossip? Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. The way you talk about people. I see where God says, don't do it but I like it. I like juicy stuff about people, right? I like to share that. Like, like let's disregard Matthew 18. Then if you've got a problem with someone, you go to them and let's go to other people and pray about that. Where we use gossip as a way to, to veil the fact that what we're prayer is a way to veil our gossip. Right. Let's just be honest. We like talking about people. I do. It feels good. It's hard to go tell someone that I have a problem with them, that they hurt me. Excuses never lead to life. They are fashioned for convenience and that we cling to them in desperation. Spurgeon had this great insight to say that when we're doing that, we are valuing convenience above anything else. We become so short-sighted saying, in this moment, I want convenience, and I'm forgetting that maybe 20 years down the road, I'm going to be desperate, and the only thing I'm going to have left is this stinking excuse. So what I want to say to you and myself, stop making excuses. Tell the truth. Stop making excuses. Stop making excuses for for why you act the way you do at home, why you act the way you do at work. I I saw this. This is really great. It says, your private eating habits will become public. Your private eating habits will become public. I needed to hear that, right? Because I like ice cream at midnight, and I think it's just going to disappear by the morning. It will become public, right? Your private excuses will always become public. Always become public. Stop making excuses. Excuses don't lead to freedom. They never lead to life. They are never productive, and they always veil the truth, and they lead us to being cowards. Don't don't choose convenience for your kids in the moment because you don't want to discipline and then come crying later when they're acting a fool. You chose convenience. You chose to not engage in a confrontation. 
And it's no one's fault but your own. It's not the church's fault. It's not the pastor's fault. It's not culture's fault. It's not the whatever political party you don't like's fault. It's not the devil's fault. Let's take responsibility. Let's take responsibility. And I think that's what this is showing us is, hey, the master was mad. He gave the invitation. But this invitation is purely upon, I have the opportunity to receive it and reject it. Well, that's free will. It's an invitation. It's not a summons. It's not a subpoena. It's an invitation. And excuses will be like at the end when he said, they will not even taste of my banquet. So I just want to encourage you, stop making excuses. Tell the truth because the truth will set you free. Tell the truth. Own up. And here's why we don't tell the truth, because we have to acknowledge where we are deficient. But I'm telling you, just get in front of the mirror and say, I am failing in this area, and God help me. I like ice cream at midnight, but it ain't helping my love handle. So God, I'm not going to ask you to, even the diet ice cream. You know what I mean? I got to make some decisions to help me stop making excuses. You know, one of the amazing things is, is this. I, I worked, as you know, for, for Joyce Meyer Ministries for a number of years, and, and I heard her share her testimony. She was raped by her father over and over again. And she made a statement one time we were at a conference that if she had to go through it all over again, she would because of what it taught her. And she said this, and she can say it. So stop making excuses about what happened to you in your past. God will redeem. It is horrible. It should have never happened. But as long as you make excuses and you allow yourself to make poor decisions and act in those ways, God cannot redeem what you do not allow him to unveil in your life. Stop the excuses. I know they're convenient. I know they feel good. But stop it. And tell the truth. And allow the truth of God to set you free. Because I don't want you to be down the road a number of years and clinging to an excuse out of desperation because of the convenience that you chose over and over and over again in the moment. Excuses are deadly. They never lead to truth. That was the tough one. Now it gets a little better, okay? I think what we... And let me say this. Let me back up here for a moment. When the master heard that they weren't coming, he didn't go out and try to reconvince them to follow him. He didn't try to go out after them and give them another invitation and spend all his time and energy on people who obviously did not want to come to the party. I want to tell you in your life that maybe there are some people that have, have hurt you, they have rejected you, they, they, they RSVP'd and never showed up, and you just need to go another direction. Because the master said, all right, we're going to go here. I'm not telling you to forsake people and cut them off, but what I'm trying to tell you is is that people that continually hurt you and don't want to have any part of your life that make excuses, stop making excuses for their excuses and go another direction. Go another direction. Find some new people. Love them, pray for them, but stop spending so much time, energy, and money in a direction of people that won't reciprocate. You put the invitation, they have to respond. And rejection is a response. Rejection is a response, unfortunately. So go another direction. Okay, now we can move on. The second thing I think we see in this story, based on the response of the master, is that God wants a full house. Verse verse 23, he says this. He responds to the servant and he says, 
Go into the country lanes and behind the hedges and urge anyone who will come. You find to come so that the house will be full. Some translation says so that my house will be full. God wants a full house. See, God is not exclusive. God is not exclusive, meaning that he makes decisions based on race, gender, economics, geography, and whether you're successful in life or not. I know that wide is the path and narrow is the gate, but the gate is narrow because Jesus is the only way. The gate isn't narrow because God says, I think I got 400 people that I want to come in. Like God doesn't have a number, okay? And then once that number is met, well then, sorry, you didn't make it. No, wide is the path because wide, there's a wide number of people that God wants to be in, but will they receive and accept the invitation? It's a very narrow invitation. It only comes through Jesus. It only comes through him. God doesn't, God doesn't make decisions about people like we do. See, the Pharisees were marked by exclusivity. They had a certain way, a certain look, a certain feel. God says, no, no, no. I want to fill my house with the lame, the crippled, the blind, and the poor. Think about that for a moment. The lame, the crippled, the blind, and the poor. I want people who are hurting and broken and in need of a, and they need me. I'm going to go and find them. Those people weren't even invited. And he sent his servant. He sent Jesus in the flesh and the Holy Spirit now in the hearts and minds of every person to pursue them. I encourage you to, to read a poem and go online. It's, it's long. It's called The Hound of Heaven. It starts out with a guy saying, I fled him. I fled him. I fled him. And in the end, he talks about that hound of heaven. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, came and found him. He came to seek and save that which was lost, not found. He wants to fill his house. Jim Cimbala, who's a pastor in, in New York, you may have heard of the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. That came out of his church. But he went to New York, and when he started at the church, it was, it was run down. It was about ready to close its doors. It needed a lot of work, and there were hardly any people. And he was just praying, God, what do I do? I don't know what to do. He felt impressed to start a, a, a weekly prayer meeting, and so they started praying, and the church started growing a bit. And he tells a story about how he was preaching or praying one, one day, and, and in walked this guy, and, and people like prostitutes and gangbangers and the homeless just started coming into the church, like just appearing. And this guy walked in, and he knew him. He was, he, was a, he was homeless, and he was an alcoholic, and he stunk, like physically stunk. And he knew that the guy was going to want to pray with him, and he's like, I don't really want to because i got a suit on, you know what I mean? I don't, I don't want to stink. That's what he's thinking in his mind. And uh, so he prays, and he tries to wait the guy out, but he can't because the guy just stays there. And he goes, and he prays for him. The guy just like envelops him in this big hug, and the stench of the street fills his nostrils. And he said, in that moment, in that moment, the Holy Spirit spoke to his heart and said, Jim, I love that smell. I love that smell. Hmm. That kind of just jerks the religious slacks off of us sometimes, doesn't it? I love that smell. I came to seek and save that which was lost. That the smell and the stench of the world, although is full of immorality and sin, God loves the person in the midst of that and that smell because he can redeem that person from that. That's what he longs to do. He runs to the mess, not away from the mess. He doesn't expect us to get cleaned up before we come in. Come as you are, right? Come as you are. Come as you are. I love that smell. My question is, do we love that smell? Is our gospel big enough to facilitate smelly people? Because I'm afraid what we forget is that we used to smell. And the fact is, we still do. We all got some smelliness in our lives that God is continuing to work on. If we're not careful, we become a Pharisee. We get prideful. 
traditional and exclusive. They can come, they can. They dress like this, they look like this, they think about this, they voted for that person. We just start putting people all over the map, and God says, like, go get them. Well, you got them now. Go out farther and get more. Because I want my house to be full. Like, there's this beautiful diversity that's going to take place in heaven. I'm so glad heaven's not going to be full of white people, right? <laughs> it's going to be full of every kind of color people. There are going to be people in heaven that you look at and you say, oh, I didn't know they were going to come. I didn't, I, I didn't know they could get here because they watched that movie, you know? Like, they, wow. Man, yeah. You're just going to scratch your head. And that's the grace of God. But here's the thing about grace. Grace doesn't make excuses. Right? Grace confronts the truth. Grace loves the smell. Grace is a teacher. Grace cleans. Grace empowers. Grace delivers. I love that smell. God wants a full house. He wants it so full that he responded to the servant and said, okay, you got all of them here, but it's not enough. Let's go get more. And what we see in him going to get more is he uses this word. He says, compel them. We find that God compels by love, not by force. In the same verse, verse 23, he said, urge anyone you find. Sometimes they say, compel anyone you find. Compel them. Compel them to come. Why did he have to compel them? Because nobody invited these people. Nobody gave them the time of day. The, the Pharisees said, nah, you ain't good enough. No, no, no. So they have to convince, like, you want, you want me at the party? Why do you want me at the party? Nobody invites me to the party. I stink. I have no money. Can't do anything. I've never been to a party. Compel them to come in. There's this, this father in heaven who's created this banquet that is so wonderful, and he just wants people to taste of his goodness and spend eternity with him. He compels by love, not by force. God does not compel by the force of shame, guilt, or legalism, or condemnation. He does not shame you into heaven. He does not guilt you into a relationship. He does not force you by fear into a relationship. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He he loves us. He compels by love. His love and his grace and his mercy confront the reality of our lives, but he does not compel by the force of shame, guilt, legalism, or condemnation. I grew up in an environment that tried to use that. And, And fear works. Oh, yeah. But it only works for a season. It doesn't change. There's a great line in the Hunger Games. You know that great piece of literature, if you read it? (laughs) They're talking to President Snow. And he says something to the effect of, we can control them by fear, but let us not give them hope. For if they have hope, they will win. See, the enemy wants to keep us in the realm of fear. But God gives us hope, like Hebrews says, as the anchor of our soul. And hope is a confident expectation of a future good. That's what the word elpis in the Greek means. Confident expectation of a future good. The hope that he gives us. He compels by love, not by force. There's a pastor in, in the inner city of Chicago that reaches out to, to the hardest of hard. They decided to throw this banquet and they, they set up this room in the, in the inner city of Chicago, and they have it beautiful. And then they have, like, butlers and waiters and everybody. And they go out, and their guests are, they, they go out and they pay for a bunch of prostitutes. They pay their pimps so the prostitutes can come to this banquet. They, they didn't know what they're walking into. And they sit all of these women down, and he gets up to speak, and he says, you know, I want you to know for the next so many, so much time, you're mine because I paid for you. I paid for your time. 
and they serve these women and they love on these women. And then he says, just as we paid for your time to be here today, there is a Savior that paid for you and paid for your life and valued you and loved you and wants to give you a hope and a future in the midst of your brokenness, in the midst of you selling yourself to provide for whatever it is that you're providing for. In the midst of your, of your, your view of yourself, there is a Father in heaven. There is a man who does not view you for what you can do for him sexually, but created you and loved you and said, this is not what I have for you. That's what this church did. A banquet for prostitutes. Sometimes in churches, we throw banquets for the top givers. We treat the top givers better than we treat the people who can't do anything for us. And what Jesus is, and I'm not saying there's anything that that's inherently wrong, but if the, if the, if the balance tips, if the teeter-totter tips one way too far, it's wrong. What Jesus is saying is, look, you all are sitting around this party because you want to be the guest of honor, and all of you, you know, you probably threw this party so these people would do something for you, but I just want to tell you that it's not about having the best people here. He, he tells them, invite the lame, the crippled, the poor, and the, and the blind. And then the guy says, oh, yeah, well, wouldn't a heavenly banquet would be so wonderful? And what Jesus is telling the Pharisees is here is you may think you want to be at this banquet, But what I'm telling you is this. I am the banquet, and you have continually and habitually rejected me and constantly try to entrap me and prove me wrong. I am the great banquet. I am the servant standing in front of you, and you have rejected the invitation. Are you sure you're ready to be in the kingdom of heaven? That's what he's telling the Pharisees. See, do you really want Jesus to come to your party? He may may poo-poo all over it. He's a Debbie Downer. That's what he does. And he just leaves the story with the master says, those who rejected the invitation will not even get a small taste of my banquet. To elevate the lame, the crippled, the blind, and the poor, and those out in the country that nobody even knows, elevating them and saying, yeah, I went and found them. Like he said in Luke chapter 4, I came to seek and save that which was lost. God wants a full house. God compels by love, not by force. And just the moment that you think, like I already said, that grace, you can't preach grace too much because it's going to give people license to sin. May I remind you, as Paul said, that grace is a teacher and that grace makes nothing of man and everything of Jesus. Grace shines in the midst of the darkness of our lives and it illuminates the person of Jesus to us. And we see that how we've been living, how bankrupt that we are, how blind and poor and crippled and lame we may be, that Jesus is better. He's better. And we lay that down to come to him. I can't tell you if every prostitute walked out of that room and that banquet and never went back to that lifestyle, but I can guarantee you they walked out of there knowing that there was a better life available to them because someone took the time to go and find them because they did not make excuses. Concluding questions I have for us this morning are this. As we take a look at this story, I think it demands that we, we identify which guest we are. We're either the first set or we're the second, or maybe we're vacillating in between. The first set, we, 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 can, we can come to God and having a, a, a greed or acknowledge that he is who he is, and we start living our lives, and we start getting a little bit blessed, and then we start becoming a little more self-sufficient, a little more self-righteous. And we, although we may not be rejecting God 
as, as not existing. We begin to reject him at little turns and times in our lives where he's saying, work on this, change this, don't do that anymore. We make excuses. We reject the invitation for growth. We reject the invitation for development. We reject the invitation for discipleship, the invitation for generosity, whatever the case may be, little by little. And the more we reject it, the more we excuse it, the less and less we get the taste of his kingdom and his relationship and his goodness. Or we either with the second set and we're just like, we're just glad to be found. You know, maybe you still identify, I'm broken, I'm hurting, I'm not feeling so self-sufficient, I'm not feeling so self-righteous. I I need him to continually help me and change me because I once was lost, but now I'm found and I still remember what it felt like to stink. I think the place that we need to be continually is in that second vein. Not being the people still afar ways off, but being the people who are broken and hurting that are attending the banquet and are seated at the table and being served by the Father and by the Son and by the Holy Spirit. And then in turn, we go out to become the servant and get others and compel them on the basis of what he's done for us. Second question I would ask this is, what excuses are you making? What are your excuses? Maybe you don't know. You can just take some moments and next few days and weeks and ask the Holy Spirit, what excuses am I making? Holy Spirit, reveal to me. Maybe we're just not aware. What, what excuses am I making? What decisions am I making? How am I valuing convenience over life and development and growth and freedom? How am I, how am I, I don't want to cling to this excuse and desperation that I made out of convenience. What excuses are you making? Those are it's an important question to ask and take a look at. I've got some excuses that I'm making that I need to stop. And then the third question is this. This is a whole story about an invitation. And Jesus, after he tells this story, he, he is talking to people around. like he, Seemingly in the scripture, he tells the story and just walks out of the party. And they're like, uh. And the people are waiting for him. But he's talking about the cost of being his disciple. And he makes some really difficult statements like if you don't hate your father and mother and if you don't leave this and if you don't do that. And he seems to insinuate that there's a cost of accepting this invitation. And you're like, well, I thought grace is free and all we have to do is receive and, 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 and I believe that. And the last question I would ask is what is the cost of accepting this invitation? And I want you to think about that over the next week. Maybe you want to go to Luke chapter 14, 15. Uh, chapter 14, verses 25 through 31, and read the rest of that, because I want to attempt to, to try to answer that question next week. What is the cost of accepting the invitation and really being a disciple, a learner, a follower of Jesus? What's that cost? Would you pray? bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for every person that's here this morning. I thank you for the opportunity to worship you, to, to, to effervesce, overflow with the goodness of who you are. I pray as, we, as we've talked about this story, Holy Spirit, you would reveal to us the heart of the Father. He wants a full house. He compels us by love and not by force. Holy Spirit, show us the areas of our lives that we're making excuses and help us to have the boldness and the confidence to step beyond the excuse and choose life over convenience. I pray as we go throughout this week and we, we, we continue to, to learn more of you and to pursue you and to really, as Jesus said, come and learn of me, that we would continue to grow and become you know, just fully devoted follower of you. 
Help us, Lord, as we endeavor in this church to, to as we help people move from where they're at to where God wants them to be, that we sense how good and how faithful you are and you are beckoning, beckoning us for growth so that you can do more and give us more. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. amen.